service, you do now. So whether uh, you're here for one of the first times, you want to come out to Discover City Life at the Nowatney's house, you can do that. Again, Jamal, wave your hand, Jamal. He's leading that Praxis Info meeting right over here. That's the internship for our church. And if you're like, ah, I'm not really doing either of those, and find somebody, invite them out to dinner. It's the nice thing about Saturday Night Church. You go and grub afterwards, eat your fill at a, any kind of restaurant. But let's uh, do life together tonight. It's a beautiful thing about the church. But just to get our thoughts going in the right direction tonight, let me pose a question. Uh, what are uh, some of your favorite albums of all time, like musical albums? You want to do the top one because for me, I'm literally thinking, what's my favorite album of all time? And it would probably take me hours to figure that out. I didn't have time, but. Dark Side of the Moon by Kathleen. Tyler. Who's that by? Led Zeppelin. Thank you, sir. My dad would be ashamed. <laughs> Injustice for All. What was that? Joshua Tree. Nate's not here, but he would have five of you. <laughs> Anybody else? Reliant K? Which one? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, what? No, what? <laughs> Thank you, sir. So I don't know what. Oh, Jamal, I knew you'd have an answer. Fly exam by uh, Jay Givens, not John Gibbs, if you didn't know. <laughs> but for me, when I'm trying to think, like, what is a, a great album made of, it's usually an album where you don't want to skip a single song. Like, from beginning to end, you're not going to be like, ah, I'm going to skip this one. Because it's a great album. Like, it, the word classic gets thrown around so easily, but even, like, my favorite artist, they'll put an album out, and there'll be a song where I'm like, eh, and I'll skip it. Because like, there's 13 songs to put together. 13, 15 excellent songs sometimes is hard. And I feel the same way about a good movie. Like, if a movie's good, if it's excellent, I'm not going to start looking at my phone and scrolling through social media because I'm, I'm absorbed in the movie. Same thing with books. Like, if it's a good book, I'm not going to want to skim ahead. I'm not going to think, man, maybe I'm just going to skip a chapter because this is dull. No, I'm captivated by every page. And, yeah, we got this book here. And how often, when you're reading it from cover to cover, hopefully, if you never have, do it. Do we think, man, maybe I'll just skip ahead of this genealogy? Or you get to a book and you're like, man, I'm going I'm to skim. You know, you got your, your plan and you're just checking the boxes like God knows, right? <laughs> but what if I told you there's a book in the Bible that's got more direct quotations from God than any other? And it's an Old Testament book, but it's quoted and pointed to some 140 times in the New Testament. You probably think, yeah, I, I would read that book. I would study it. I would make sure I know it well. And historians and people who have studied, studied ancient Jewish culture said that Jews in Jesus' time, the three books that they would have been most familiar with were Deuteronomy, Psalms, and the book I'm talking about, which is Leviticus. But if we're honest, in the modern church, Leviticus is probably one of the most skipped, skimmed, books in the Bible, if we had a bottom three where, like, you had to lose three books, it would probably be one of the ones sacrificed where we're like, hey, Leviticus, pass. It's the killer of well-meaning Bible plans. Like, you're trying to read cover to cover. You get through Exodus, right? You get to the tabernacle stuff at the end of Exodus, and you're like, oh, that was heavy. Hope we got some light stuff around the corner. And then Leviticus hits you with a wall of sacrifices and rituals and festivals and laws. And this is the book that we're digging into. And I remind you of what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 where he says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And if we truly believe that all scripture is God-breathed, and Leviticus has more words directly quoted from God than any other book, then it's important to ask, well, what is it saying? What does it tell us? 
And like all of the Bible, as I've said a lot recently, all of the Bible is either preparation for Jesus, it's a presentation of Jesus, or it's about our participation in the work of Jesus and the work he left for the church. So Leviticus is pointing forward to Jesus. And just like last week, we spent time looking at the sacrifices because Leviticus wastes no time in Leviticus chapter 1 jumping into these sacrifices We talked about how they point forward to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice and atonement at the cross and his blood that would one day be shed as a sacrifice for us. We talked about how the Hebrew word for sacrifice is this word korban, which means to draw near, to come close. And we talked about how when Israelites heard that word within the first three verses of Leviticus, where we're already starting to skim, their minds were being blown. Because the pagan gods of that time were distant, they were detached, and here you have the God of Israel saying, no, I want to give you access, I want to give you assurance, the two things we talked about last week in regard to these sacrifices that we have at a whole nother level in Jesus Christ. So Leviticus, when you look at it as a whole, when you look at it in the context of the Bible, it's a beautiful picture of a God who longs for relationship, so much so that At this point in the Bible, Christ has already been prophesied and pointed to, and he's inbound, but it's like God couldn't wait. He was itching for relationship, so he gives in Leviticus the recipe to walk in intimate relationship with an infinite God. But even at the beginning of Leviticus, or as we're about to get into Leviticus, we see there's a problem. At the end of Exodus, they've built the tabernacle according to every instruction that God gave them, which was no small feat. So they built the tabernacle, and it says that it was so filled with God's presence that even Moses couldn't enter. So we get at the beginning of Leviticus in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle, right, from a distance. He called to Moses, and we see immediately that (laughs) this is the issue. How does an unholy people come into the presence of a holy God and walk in relationship with a holy God. How do we go from relationship at a distance to intimate interaction with this infinite God? But we see Leviticus helps the equation because you get to Numbers chapter 1 verse 1 and it says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. The problem had been solved. The the gap had been bridged. And I want to look at how in this series, because like I said last week, so many believers have settled into a long-distance relationship with God. You know, when you have a long-distance relationship with uh, somebody here on earth, the goal is never to stay in a long-distance relationship. At some point, hopefully, the goal is to bridge that gap and do life together. We should have the same goal with God. But so often we settle into life where it's like, yeah, God is distant. God is watching from a distance, and the whole thought of a life that is intimately walking with God moment by moment, day by day, seems foreign to us. But that's not God's desire. We see this here. We see this here in Leviticus. But how many people in the church were satisfied with the fact God has pursued us through Jesus at the cross, but we're missing out on promises and purposes for our lives because we never pick up a pursuit of God and a pursuit of Jesus But when we pick up this pursuit, as we talked about last week and just now, there's a problem. You don't just strut into the presence of God when you're a sinful, unholy people. Something has to be done. And the promise of Leviticus was that an obedient Israel would experience a God who will, quote, walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. This whole idea of God walking amongst us, it points back to Genesis where God would walk in the Garden of Eden with Adam and they had intimate relationship. 
And we see as we keep reading past Genesis, we see the redemption and deliverance of Exodus. It sets up the establishment of worship in Leviticus. Now, if I ask Chris, right, he's in the house. He led us in worship, did an amazing job. He's the uh, creative arts director for City Life. If I'm like, Chris, when you open up your Bible, you want to read about worship, where do you turn? Psalms, right? That's a good answer. Probably wouldn't say Leviticus, right? But as I'm studying for, for this series, one theologian called Leviticus the one book of the Bible almost wholly dedicated to worship. Another said, right worship is a key concern of the regulations reported in Leviticus. And we think, worship? Because I don't read Leviticus and think, oh, this is, this, is, this is informing my worship. Because so often, I know for me, I drift to this thought pattern where worship is like a genre on iTunes. It's a, it's a style of music on Spotify. Or worship is like a 30-minute uh, experience in a service on the weekend where once you're done, you check the box and you've worshipped. But Leviticus shows us that we worship God in three ways, private devotion, public service, and group celebration. We're going to spend a week on each. But again, the promise of Leviticus is that those that worship well in obedience to God will walk with God. Obedience to what? Glad you asked. Because throughout Leviticus, we get law after law, hundreds of laws to show us how to live pure lives in God's presence in step with him. The reason for that is, is God wanted to prevent the Israelites from walking in the worship that Isaiah would later lament, uh, Jesus would later quote, where Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. You know, for other gods of ancient times, the ethics and morals of the worshiper had little bearing in the relationship of the people with the deity. But Leviticus makes it clear that God's relationship with the Israelites and their worship, it would be different. How they lived, their faithfulness, purity, and goodness had everything to do with their worshiping of God. And the laws of reg and the regulations in Leviticus were to keep them from worshiping like the other nations in the promised land did. Or the nations they were coming from like Egypt did. We see it in the laws in Leviticus 11 through 15 about ritual purity. We see it in the second group of laws in chapters 18 through 20 about uh, moral and ethical laws. And uh, confession. I was talking, who was I talking to? Ed, before service. I was like, this is a big old bite to chew. Like Raj, he, uh, he gorges. And sometimes he'll put so much in his mouth, you don't even have to tell him it's too much. He realizes it. He realizes the only way forward is retreat. And he'll just stick his finger in. He's like, I can't, and I can't eat all that. So he has to take it out. So tonight, tackling the laws of Leviticus, as we try to tackle Leviticus in three weeks, I want to take three bites. Uh, look at it in three ways. The context of the laws, questions about the laws, and then the outcome of the laws. A word that I just believe God has for us as a church. But, but first, the context of the laws. You look at the context in the bigger story of the Bible, and what we should notice first is that the law is given after Israel's deliverance. Exodus comes before Mount Sinai. God's gracious deliverance of the Israelites comes before he gives them the law. And what that shows us is that our obedience, it flows from grace. It doesn't earn it. Right? God's laws, they don't, he's, they're not given to us so that we can earn his grace, earn his favor. No, no, no. It's because of his grace and because of his favor that we walk in obedience. If that's deep for you, man, read Galatians. Go read it. It's, it's amazing. But in terms of context in Leviticus, we talked last week about how Leviticus, I didn't say this last week, but it's kind of like a sandwich, right? You got the, the, law, the, the sacrifices and then the feast with sacrifices within it that are like the bread. 
and then the laws about uh, ritual purity, and then the laws about moral purity. You could call it the meat or cheese if you like more cheese than meat. And then at the heart of the sandwich, at the heart of Leviticus, is the Day of Atonement. This annual feast where, where two goats were presented. One was sacrificed and one was the scapegoat, a term we're familiar with, that would carry the sins of the Israelites out of the camp. All of this was about how to come into relationship with God and, and walk in his presence. So before the account of the Day of Atonement at the heart of Leviticus, in chapters 16 through 17, we get these rules about how to stay clean and be cleansed if we're defiled or unclean. Again, rules for ritual purity. But then right after the Day of Atonement, we get more rules. These are about moral holiness and purity. So coming out of these chapters about the Day of Atonement, this day of vertical reconciliation with God as the Israelite people were made right with God, we immediately get laws that operate on a horizontal level, how we deal with those around us. Why? Because Leviticus and its laws show us that our worship of God isn't just a vertical affair between us and God. We have to live lives that emulate God's holiness in our day-to-day interactions as we go about our lives as well. My worship is more than just about my words, and it should affect more than just my life. Your worship is more than just your words you sing on a Saturday or Sunday, and it should affect more than just your life. That's context or a conclusion we can come to based on the context of Leviticus. But then some questions about the laws. So I was a youth pastor. I'd often encourage kids to read their Bible, and they'd get to Leviticus, and they'd be like, what can I skip to, right? Can I go to the Gospels, right? And I'd encourage them, yes, please. (laughs) But the questions would be like, why so many? Why so many laws? It's just too many demanding rules, some of them we can't even make sense of in our context. The Old Testament has 613 laws. Leviticus has 247. But to compare, let's look at how many laws are in the U.S. The number, nobody knows exactly. There's about 5,000 criminal laws and about 300,000 regulations that can be enforced locally. So you look at that, you look at the Bible, I'd say God was pretty concise. But you know, a little over a year ago, February into March of last year, Steph and I were posted up living out of a hotel in New Delhi with a 17-month-old orphan that had just become our son. And uh, we weren't sightseeing. (laughs) We were in this hotel trying to get out of the country. And every day we had an appointment at what basically equated to the DMV. Hell on earth. (laughs) And and mind you, in India there's no AC. So you're hanging out with this 17-month-old boy who still really doesn't know you, still getting comfortable with you in all these different places where you're taking a number and you're sitting down and waiting (laughs) again and again every day. Now, trust me, there was the impulse to complain and the itch to gripe about all these regulations and hoops that there were to jump through. But then when you reflect on the heart behind those, the reason for those, that the whole reason that all those rules exist is so I can't take a kid like Raj and just dip and all of a sudden he's a part of human trafficking. There's a reason for those rules. And it's so easy to gripe about the many laws of Leviticus and miss the purpose behind them. That God is graciously providing a way for sinful people to have intimate relationship with an infinitely holy God. And this was no small step. Again, God was pretty concise to do it in 247 laws. And it was informing their worship, again, and distinguishing it from the traps of the culture around them that worshiped differently. And it was providing a way so, again, as it says in Leviticus 19, that he could dwell with humanity again. So the second question, though, is should we, like, even try to make sense of them? Some of these laws don't make sense in our context. Like, you can look at Leviticus 19, where it's talking about don't plant a field with two kinds of seeds. Uh, don't wear clothing with two kinds of, of cloth. We, we're not sowing our own clothes for the most part. We're usually not planting our own food. 
uh, one of the verses, verse 27 says, don't trim the edge of your beard. Tyler Lee, I think he might uh, live by that. I don't know. But some of us, we can't even grow a beard well, let alone trim it. Uh, So Leviticus, you get all these laws that are enculturated. I looked it up. That's a word. In a particular time and place. And we don't live in that time and we don't live in that place. And even if you did, you realize that some of God's laws that he gives the Israelites, he didn't explain it for them. Like these laws about clean and unclean foods. And why were some clean and some unclean? There's been so much scholarly research put into it, and nobody still really knows for sure. God doesn't always give detailed explanations for his commands. And not even just in Leviticus. Look through the Bible, right? He comes to Abraham and says, hey, leave everything you know and just leave, right? Or sacrifice your son. And there's no deep explanation for these uh, commands, But we grow, certainly we grow in understanding when we examine the why behind God's commands. But we grow in character. We grow in faith when we decide to obey, even when we have a limited ability to understand. You'll grow in understanding when you ask questions, but sometimes you don't find the answer. And that's when you grow in character. That's when you grow in faith. When you still say, I'm going to obey these commands, even though I don't have full understanding. It's walking in faith. Thomas Kempis, who's an author and a theologian, he put it this way. It is faith and a holy life that are required of you. Not a lofty intellect or knowledge of the profound mysteries of God. Some of us said amen, right? Deuteronomy 29.29 is also useful. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed and disclosed belong to us and our children forever, so that we may do all the words of this law. So do we have a a detailed explanation of every law in Leviticus? No. But we do know that there are reasons God gives them. One, to distinguish his people. Again, to set them apart from surrounding cultures and their way of worship. But the second is to diagnose, especially as Paul outlines in the New Testament, that we're given these laws to show, like, we couldn't keep them all. We're fallen. We're broken. We don't just need the laws. We need a Savior. We need a perfect person to fulfill them on our behalf, and that's Jesus Christ. But again, we grow in understanding, we grow in wisdom when we dive into the why behind God's commands. But you grow in character and you'll grow in faith when you take that step to obey, even when you realize you don't have full understanding or your understanding is limited. So the question is, should we apply all of them? Like, do we follow all these commands? Because skeptics, they'll cry foul or they'll say that we're hypocrites. Because some of these we don't follow. I clearly trim my beard. I have tattoos, right? And uh, I like to eat meat with some blood in it, right? I like medium well. But then we hold to some of these prohibitions about sexual immorality. So some people are like, well, isn't that, what are you doing? Isn't that hypocrisy? And again, there's some that we may not be able to understand or make sense of in our current context. But a little formula, a little five steps that were uh, healthy for me. I don't know why that verse is up there. There we go. (laughs) questions that somebody gave to me. You do it in this order and you can begin to walk through some of these laws. You determine the intent. Dig into the text. Not just the text, but it's important to dig into the context. That culture, again, is another side of the world years and years and generations and generations and thousands of years ago. So study the text and the context and you can begin to determine the original intent. And then determine the differences between that original audience and us, the modern one. And from that, determine the universal principle behind the prescription or prohibition. This is what the Pharisees often mixed. They had the laws, but Jesus said they missed the important aspects of the law. They missed the very heart behind the law. 
And then four, filter this principle through the progressive revelation of Scripture, the New Testament, the gospel, and the rest of the Bible. You'll find, like some, like the food laws and circumcision, they're explicitly uplifted. Others, like the laws on sexuality, they're doubled down on. And then lastly, you can determine the application of the principle to life today. That's five steps. Most of us quit with a lot of things in life after about two. (laughs) So this is a work that a lot of people don't make. So either they misapply with knee-jerk obedience, or they end up punting the whole thing and say, well, Jesus fulfilled the law anyway, right? So we don't have to worry about any of those rules, any of those laws. We're free from the law. But you can run, say, Leviticus 19.28's command where it says, don't have sex. <laughs> you can run that through, uh, through those questions. Just for example, quickly, the intent in that context was for them to, again, keep their practices and worship far from those of the nations that they were living among. And the differences from their context to ours, in their context, in that region of the world, people would mark themselves, cut themselves deeply in acts of worship for dead loved ones. And the Egyptians, this culture they were coming out of, had learned to mark their bodies as an act of worship. But there's no such connotation in, uh, in our culture today. It's more decoration. So people might come up to me, but usually when I'm talking about worship, it's because they're asking questions and I'm able to share about my faith. And then the principle within it is simply don't conform to this world's worship of lesser gods. And then filtered through the New Testament and the rest of the Bible, you realize that, again, there's no connection to the modern context. But then the application is important. Because you go through these laws and some people are vegan, right? They don't eat the meat, right? Some people, like Tyler, clearly don't trim their beard, right? And so <laughs> some people, like you, might not be comfortable getting a tattoo. You read Romans 14, Paul in the New Testament, he talks about how there's matters of morals, there's matters of conscience, and then there's foregoing liberties. It's another sermon for another time, but a lot of these things... You give space and give grace for those who think differently. But I've always found that to be helpful as I approach the Old Testament in light of the entire Bible. So that's the context. Those are some of the questions. And, and, and a lot of the laws about clean and, and unclean and the ritual purity, they don't, they don't really stand this test. Again, we see the, the, the unclean foods. In, I believe it's Mark 6 where Jesus basically says it's not what, what comes in your mouth but out your mouth. Uh, that makes you impure. And then you see it again in Acts where God tells Peter and he gives him this vision three times over to tell him, like, hey, it's okay. But there's a verse in Leviticus, as I'm studying this week, and it's a verse I probably read a dozen times, if not more, and never really had a second thought about. And, and I just really felt like God wanted me to expand on that, expound on that. So in terms of like an outline for this sermon, if I submitted this to one of my old English teachers at William Mary, they probably uh, uh, dock my grade or drop my grade. But I believe God wants to drop a word uh, about our worship in light of one of these rules in Leviticus or information in Leviticus. And we see in these laws about being clean and unclean and defiled that to touch a dead body, be it human or animal, it made you unclean. You became impure or unclean when you were contaminated by death because God in his essence is life. So he has no part of death. And again, as we talked about last week, to be impure or, or to be unclean, it's not sinful, but you couldn't just walk into God's presence in the tabernacle when you were in an unclean state. So you had to be purified. And I want to look at it's Leviticus 11, verses 33 through 36. Again, I was just reading through what I was going to be preaching on and just felt God speak from this passage. It says in Leviticus 11, verse 33, it's talking about... Uh, this whole idea of becoming unclean because of a dead body. And this is an animal. It says, if such an animal, 
a dead animal, falls into a clay pot, everything in the pot will be defiled, and the pot must be smashed. And if the water from such a container spills on any food, the food will be defiled. And any beverage in such a container will be defiled. Any object on which the carcass of such an animal falls will be defiled. If it's an oven or a hearth, it must be destroyed, for it is defiled, and you must treat it accordingly. You get this vicious cycle of things just being defiled on top of defilement. And then it says in verse 36, though, however, if the carcass of such an animal falls into a spring or a cistern, the water will still be clean. But anyone who touches the carcass will be defiled. So, again, you got this cycle of defilement after defilement. But you see, a water source is immune. It's an odd but striking example, but there's a valuable principle to be found that a source of purity can't be defiled. Because if you begin to read in the New Testament, right, it's the same reason Jesus could walk around and he would touch lepers. And rather than being made unclean, they were not just made clean, they were healed, right? The woman with the issue of blood who was hemorrhaging could come up to Jesus and touch him. And he didn't rebuke her for making him unclean. She got healed and he blessed her, right? Because he is this source of purity, clearly God in the flesh. Fast forward from Leviticus to John 7, we see Jesus, he makes this powerful promise during the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, in our our next installment, we'll look at these celebrations, but it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. On the seventh day, priests would walk down from the temple to draw water from a pool in the city of David, and they'd climb back up the hill and pour it out before the altar. And it's during this ceremony, as they're going back up the hill, that Jesus speaks out in John chapter 7, verse 38. And he says, anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. So here he's doing two things within the context of the Gospels and the Gospel of John. First, he's echoing this assertion that he made that he was the new temple. Again, it's an assertion he makes in John chapter 2. He's saying, come to me as the source of life, living water, cleansing, and hope for salvation. And he's also echoing the statement that he made to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 12, where he says to her, Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So to go back to Leviticus, we see that the tabernacle, what eventually becomes the temple, is kind of like this headquarters of holiness. It's the holiness HQ. It's at the center of all their worship, and it's the heart of all their worship. And Moses, when he built the tabernacle, he put a bronze basin uh, right behind the altar where priests could cleanse themselves. And Solomon, because he did everything extra, he made what was called the the sea, and it was the size of a pool, and it was made of bronze. And it was, again, to purify the priests. But Jesus says in the New Testament, again, he says, I'm the temple now. It's like that (laughs) Captain Phillips meme where he says, I'm the captain now. (laughs) It's Jesus saying, I'm the temple now. If I lost you, don't even worry about it. (laughs) He's saying, look, I'm the center of your worship, your source of life and holiness. And not only that, This life-giving water was meant to flow from your heart and into the world. And what's powerful, again, about him making this statement in John chapter 7, verse 38, is that during this ceremony, the Jews would have been reflecting on the, the vision found in Ezekiel 47, where water flows from God's temple out into the world. As they're doing this water ceremony, that was part of their reflection and their tradition. And we see in Ezekiel 47, we're not going to read the whole passage. I know we're jumping around a lot. But the water flows out of the temple, the south side of the temple, where the sea, this basin would have been that was meant to purify the priests. But it flows out from the temple. And this water purifies and it cleanses everything it touches. Not just that, it transforms things that are dead and brings them life. So much so that in this vision, it flows into the dead sea and the dead sea becomes this body of life-giving water in this vision. 
And the key verse in this vision is Ezekiel 47, 9, where it says, where the river flows, everything will live. Rivers are pretty prominent in Scripture. We see a river in Revelation that flows from the throne of God, provides healing for the nations. We see a river all the way back in Genesis that flowed through Eden, where God's presence walked with man. And in Leviticus, we see the first stroke of this prophetic picture that would be built on by Jesus and Ezekiel, this spring of pure water, source of water, flowing from the temple and into the world. See, we don't live with the same temple mentality that the Israelites had in Leviticus because we don't only worship or go to God to worship in the four walls of a specific location. We talked last week about our access and the increased access we have through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we worship as if God's caged in four walls, but God isn't tied up in a place. Our worship isn't tied to a place, but our worship is tied to a source, God. And it should flow from that source into everything we do. The laws of Leviticus, the establishment of the tabernacle, the eventual, the eventual temple aren't solely to protect some sphere of holiness or restrict access to worshiping God's presence. It's meant to ultimately flow through us and into the world. So simply tonight, we need to realize we're called to be secondary sources. Secondary sources. Again, Jesus says, hey, I'm the temple now. But then as we see the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost and Paul's teaching about the Holy Spirit in us, he says, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, temples of God's presence in us, not to be separate spheres of holiness again or walled gardens in the midst of a desert. No, we're supposed to be this picture of water in Leviticus 11 flowing from the temple of Ezekiel 47, a source of God's presence, its blessing, and its healing to the world around us. Mobile worship, a temple on the move, worship on the move. We emulate Christ when we operate in this way, a one-way channel of blessing to the world without becoming defiled yourself. And we remain pure in this way through obedience, obeying the laws that God gives us. Our obedience to God's law is like the conduit that carries and directs the living water and his spirit. Because you can worship God on a weekend, but it's our week-to-week obedience that amplifies it, turns it up, and validifies it. It's our week-to-week obedience, again, that serves as a conduit to, to carry that living water, like a sprinkler, just spread it to the world. Because when I say worship service, what comes to mind? Probably this right here, right? Think of a worship service, you think of coming together to worship. But what if worship service no longer just referred to a 90-minute worship experience on a weekend, but it came to define our service throughout the week? our worshiping service, our our service that worships God. You know, the entire last sermon in this series is going to point to the priority that Leviticus gives us to coming together in celebrations, to worship together. Tonight and the stuff we do tonight or on the weekends in church is precious. But the worship in Leviticus is big enough for both. It's big enough for all these facets of worship. And what if worship service definition looked a little bit more like this? Ben, hit me. (laughs) but where worship isn't just service on the weekend. We're at the end, God waves to us at the door and says, hey, we'll see you next week, right? Come back and see me next week. He's not cooped up in a building all week, and neither should our worship be left there. Where worship is more than just a worship experience on the weekend, and worship service becomes the service throughout the week that is our worship to God. You see in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he said, here's what I want you to do. God helping you. This is the message version. He says, here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. 
your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. The amplified version says, present your bodies, dedicating all of yourselves, set apart as a living sacrifice, holy and well-pleasing to God. He says, this is your rational act of worship. The King James Version says, this is your reasonable service. What I love about the word reasonable is it's kind of reasonable if God gives us everything. Scriptures say he gave us life and breath and all things. If he's given us all things, it's reasonable that our worship would offer all things back to him. Anything less would be incomplete and not enough. But we also see that in these different translations, worship and service, as they're translating this Greek work, they're almost synonymous. That worship in its essence in this verse means to serve and to obey. And our obedient service to the laws of God is worship service. It's worshipful service. God's laws, you kind of think of them as as sheet music for our week-to-week worship. They're the notes that praise him when there's no band on stage as we follow his laws and, and obey his commands. Again, for other gods of those times, the ethics and the morals of the worshiper had little bearing on the relationship of the people with their God. But Leviticus makes it clear that God's relationship with the Israelites, God's relationship with us and our worship, it's different. As Romans 12 verse 2 goes on to say, our worship doesn't conform to the world. We're transformed. And how we live, our faithfulness, our purity, our obedience has everything to do with our worship of God. You know, Leviticus and his laws show us That our worship of God is not just a vertical affair between us and God. Our worship of God should should affect the horizontal aspects of life as well. It should overflow into the world. God is honored by our lives as we relate well to others. God is honored by our lives when we humbly serve others. When we seek justice for the oppressed. When we care for the foreigner, the widow, and the orphans. If I could have the worship team come up last last week, excuse me, we looked at Hebrews 13 verse 5 what it tells us about our access. It says in Hebrews 13, verse 5, it says, Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. Again, as we talked about last week, there was this new access where in the Old Testament, your, your praise and your sacrifices were weekly or annually, but through Jesus Christ, we have an access that can be continual. We don't have to settle into a weekly worship cycle. It's moment by moment. See, continually... Offering worship, continually offering praise, continually gets our worship outside the four walls of a church. The word continually gets our worship outside of just a worship conference here or there. The word continually gets our worship outside of just a playlist on Spotify or iTunes. The the word continually gets our worship into our workplace. The word continually gets our worship into our neighborhoods. The word continually gets our worship into our families and our households and our homes. Again, this living water flowing from us. We're secondary sources, mobile temples, flowing from us, this water, into the world. And it changes everything because coming up, I always thought you go to church to worship. But when you start thinking of worship as something you do continually, I realize we're called to go to church worshiping. Right? Like we were singing that song to start worship. We're talking about open up the gates, make way for the king of kings. That happens when you're, you go to church worshiping. <laughs> you don't go because you're empty and you need to be filled up, but because you've lived a life of continual worship. It's just an overflow. And all our streams of worship come together in one river and one anthem of praise to Jesus Christ. This worship that's no longer confined to four walls of a church building or a temple because as Paul tells us, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus tells us, this living water is supposed to flow from us and affect the world. May we live 
from that kind of overflow where worship service is synonymous with our obedience service throughout the week where worship is continuous, where worship is this living water, the Holy Spirit operating in us and using us to affect the world around us. But if we could stand, we're going to go into worship to close tonight. Why not apply it now, right? <laughs> but I want to reflect on what he says again in John 7. Jesus Christ says, come and drink. Those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. God, may you fill us again, God, in such a way that <laughs> we're secondary sources. Temples on the move. Like Jesus, we can go out and, and not fear contamination, not fear dark places, but we can go out and, and realize that, God, you use us to transform carry your power to transform. We're but vessels, Lord God. But God, I pray that you would just renew our perspective on worship. God, the breadth of our worship, Lord God, that is not confined as you aren't confined to any one place as you told that woman at the well, Lord God. So I pray tonight if we feel dry, if we feel weary, even if spiritually we feel uh, unclean, God, I pray that you would meet us tonight. And God, I pray that you would Fill us again with your spirit. And God, fill us again to overflowing, Lord God, so we can truly live out lives where your spirit and our worship go into the world. They're not confined here tonight, Lord God, but we connect to and transform the world around us, God. But we know that that happens again as we lift you up. God, let our faith arise. Let our expectation arise. Let our hope arise. Let our courage arise as we lift up this praise to you, Lord Jesus. Yeah. 